if we recall, we were in that portion. We've been building up in John chapter 6. We're not going to finish the chapter today, but we're going to move a little further in it. To that moment where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we got that beautiful moment last week. And in that, Jesus revealed such spiritual truth and the necessity of that truth being understood for eternity. Jesus was pushing them as he was trying to help them understand to go beyond the temporal, to focus on the eternal, to focus on eternity. In the midst of his mission to bring souls to salvation, he's always pointing them to remember everlasting life, eternal life. And as he does that, we need to think, how do you do with pondering eternity? Do you take that time to ponder, to meditate, to pray on eternity with Jesus? How are you doing with living for eternity? Because if we think about living for eternity, that then means we don't get lost in the things that the world says to get lost in because we think about forever and ever and ever with our King. In this passage last week, we saw the mystery of salvation. We saw that God brings us in, but we also saw that man has a responsibility to receive his free gift. Salvation, that mystery that we got to meditate on. And we went to the table, it was communion Sunday last week, and we got to think about his sacrifice on the cross. How often do you pause and recall everything that he's done for you? How often do you take that time? I've talked before about memorializing your walk with the Lord, be it a journal, be it songs, be it artwork, whatever you do, memorialize your journey with your king and come back and recount all he has done starting at salvation and all that is to come. For those who um, joined us for the potluck and prayer last week, it was truly a blessed first time of that. And the time of prayer Truly was a surrender for yours truly because I had a plan and it went in a direction where the Lord's like, hold that phone, we ha- you got to do what I want. And it was truly incredible to see the scripture that each person came forth and built and the message the Lord had and the reminders of his truth and his goodness and that he's our shepherd for each and every single one of us. But you got to take that time to be still in his presence, to know that he is God and let him give you those reminders. In the passage last week, we saw it isn't about being a busybody. It isn't about running around. It's about the heart that's seeking. What's the motive of the heart? Because we saw, we looked at that map. They traveled quite journey to seek out Jesus. But the motive wasn't quite what it needed to be. It was about the physical, not the spiritual. So our charge check-in from last week. One, you were to check Your satiated habits. What currently satiates you? What gratifies you? What saturates you? What shifts do you need to make? Maybe as I say that, you're reminded and thinking, oh yeah, I didn't really change anything last week. Well, there's still time. (laughs) So make those shifts. Two, busybody, seeking, barometer. Did you check your busybody? Barometer. Are you just doing and doing and doing so you can be busy and look at me, I'm doing all these things? What's the motive behind what you're doing? And remember that question, because we saw Jesus, they're seeking, they're seeking, and they show up. And they're like, how did you get here? And he says, you're looking for me because you want me to fill your belly. What truth bomb would Jesus say to you if he came to you face to face in the midst of your seeking and busybodiness? And the third 
Who did you share the bread of life with last week? We can't just take what we're learning and keep it for ourselves. Who did you share the bread of life with last week? Who did you pray for their salvation? And if there's like, you know, I, I, I didn't really do that. Do it today. Then do it the next day. Do it every day. We're called to share Jesus. We don't just keep it in a little pocket or in a bag that's all mine. No, share. Share who he is that others would come to know. Now today we're going onward in verses 41 to 59, and the title of today's message is Religious Limitations. And as we think about religion, there's often that question, well, what religion are you? What what do you believe? And religion itself often comes with placing different limits or boundaries on God or how God can act. Religion oftentimes actually dismisses God altogether. Some religions don't even have God present because you can just create your own religion in 2024. Religion often comes about partaking of self, partaking of ritual, partaking of rules, but it abandons relationship. There's no real relationship. Now, interesting, a few statistics I want to share as we think about our country and Christianity, and this is from 2023, um, and uh, the Barna Group gives. In 2023, the biblical worldview in the nation was 4%. Three years before that, it was 6%. So those are folks that they poll that are truly based on scores where their beliefs, their behaviors, solid follow a biblical worldview. In 2020, it was 6%. In 2023, 4%. Now, followers who a little bit mix, like there's a little bit of Bible, but there's a little bit of the world, so it's a little bit, a little bit of this and that, if you will. 2020 was 25%, 2023, 14%. And then folks who are focused on a worldview other than a biblical worldview, in 2020 it was 69%, and in 2023, 82%. So we see these shifts. Then we look at Bible reading. Bible reading has been on the wane for a long time, but the trend has worsened in recent years. This is from the American Bible Society's annual report, State of the Bible USA, found a precipitous drop in Bible reading after the pandemic ended. ABS defines Bible users as people who use the Bible at least three to four times each year on their own outside of church. It's a fairly low standard. In 2022, it showed the number of Bible users had dropped nearly 26 million than in the previous year. The percentage of Bible, leaders, uh, Bible users in the population dropped 10 points to an unprecedented low of 39% and remained the same in 2023. Then we think about those that are leading the churches. And another survey through Barna, we see that, in fact, slightly just more than a third of pastors, 37% possess a biblical worldview, and the majority, 62%, hold a hybrid worldview. Syncretism, where there's Bible and world. Then we think of senior pastors, 41% of senior pastors holding a biblical worldview. 28% of associate pastors. 12% of children and youth pastors. And among teaching pastors, a mere 13% holding a biblical worldview. So when we look at all of this, the biblical worldview, I believe, is being lost because God is pushed out. Jesus is gone. We partake of self, we drink from the cup of the world, and the bread of life is pushed aside. And the bread of life is replaced with the bread of self. 
Religious limitations focus on the temporal, not the eternal. It's where we truly create our own system. It's my way, not Yahweh, when it really should be Yahweh always. But it gets to that case where we just make our own thing. And we're going to see in today's passage how a limited perspective of not being able to truly hear the spiritual truth that Jesus is giving is some of that roots of how religion creeps in. The religious leaders we're going to see and this crowd mixed with them question Jesus' claim that he came down from heaven. We're going to see murmurs despite miracles. Think of what they would have known, what they saw with the feeding of the nearly 20,000 as we looked at how many people would be there with children and, and women. And that shows us a timeless truth of the human heart. How quickly we're discontented and grouse and complain. Jesus, we're going to see his steadfast truth unwavering, even amidst meeting frustration, meeting, what is this? Why, why, how could you say that? How could you say this? He stays to the truth. Jesus gives the spiritual truth, but it's received, as we'll see, with physical eyes. It's received limited. And it's a reminder to us when we look at these spiritual truths, when we look at these metaphors that our Savior lays out, it's intentional, saints, because God wants us to dig deeper. If you read something in Scripture, it's like, oh, that's kind of confusing. Okay, I don't care about that. No, 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 stop. Dig deeper. Ask the Holy Spirit that dwells within you who is given as a teacher to help you understand, to glean wisdom from our King. Jesus is going to remind in this to eat of his flesh, to drink his blood. Now, if you're not one familiar with that, you're probably now at this moment thinking, what is this dude talking about eating flesh and blood? It's Sounds creepy, and to them, they would have said, what is this? And we have all the laws. We can't do that. But again, it's a spiritual gift that comes through the cross. We're going to see eternal life guaranteed and spelled out. We're going to see our call to action because of the faith that leads us to eternal life. And we're going to see relationship over religion, and that relationship one-to-one with Jesus because it's an individual relationship that each and every single one of us has to have. So stand with me, and let's read John chapter 6, verses 41 to 59. We read there. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, for which which I shall give for the life of the world. 
The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord God, I pray that you would help to illuminate the depth of what it is to feed on drink of you, Lord God. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, please empower me to deliver the words that are needed for your people. Help us all to cast aside distractions to focus on what you would have us glean from these verses today, Lord God. That we would have the manna of your word written on our hearts that we might not sin against you. That we may run the race for your glory better equipped to lay aside every sin that gets in the way. Heavenly Father, lead and guide in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Have a seat. So we see in verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now the reference to coming down from heaven within this passage, within this chapter, we see this six times, verses 33, 38, 41, 50, 51, and 58. Now when we look at those verses, he never exactly says verbatim, the quote that they give. But it's a fair claim that they make based on everything that he has said thus far. Now, we know when we see the Jews, we're talking about the religious leaders. We know some of them have come alongside. So we've got the crowd. We've got the religious leaders. They're all together. And if we think about these leaders, they know everything, don't they? That's what they believed. They rule. They know everything. They have all of the knowledge and understanding. And we see there... And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And right at verse 41, the Jews then complained. Notice they come and it's a bit of human nature. When something doesn't quite make sense to us, when we don't want to accept something, when something doesn't quite line up with what our intellect has determined it is, we often go to complaining because it's easier to complain than dig deeper. It's easier to grouse then dig deeper. And on this, right away, they're placing limits on Jesus by their intellect. They place limits because they think we know all the history. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? We see the same thing in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Complaints, offense at truth. And their intellect places limits because why dig deeper? Why go further to try to think what might be here? He keeps saying, come down from heaven. 
Is there something here? Have we heard anything else spoken of him? If we think of the beginning of this book, the Gospel of John, we have in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know he's preexistent. Then verse 12, but as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They don't want to dig deeper. Perhaps if they did, they would have gleaned thinking of Nicodemus' encounter, hearing of the Samaritan woman, and perhaps wondered, is there something more here to this man? And the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is veiled, God, veiled in flesh. But they don't want to dig deeper. They want to ignore John the Baptist saying in verse 29 of chapter 1, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 36, and looking at Jesus as he walked, John says again, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. They don't want to dig deeper. They don't want to accept the truth that they've heard in all these places. Because what are they seeking? Physical satiation. They feel they have no spiritual need. We're good. We're chosen. We're good. We don't need anything. We don't need that. You're just a natural guy just like us. We saw you grow up. They don't dig to ponder, who is this Jesus? Then we see in verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. So Jesus doesn't engage. He doesn't take that moment to say, guys, let me explain this to you. My mother was a virgin. The Holy Spirit had this happen. No, he just right away tells them, do not murmur among yourselves. And that murmur is the grumbling pattern that we see in the Old Testament. If we think about in the book of Exodus, if you look at Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 16, we see time and time again, the deliverance takes place and they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're upset. They're not happy. There's anger, there's frustration. That's human nature. If we look at Exodus chapter 16, This is after they've been delivered out of Egypt. This is after the Red Sea. At that point, I don't know about anybody else, but if those things had happened with me, I'd be like, all right, I'm good. Let's just keep going. I hope I would. Let's be real. Because human nature, we grumble. Verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We're not happy. (laughs) Angry. And this is what happens. This is what occurs with human nature. And as we look at this, as they're placing these limits intellectually at this point, they're just bitter and complaining and murmuring. How can he say that he's he's saying he came from heaven? He's going to have these, these people are following him. And they're upset. Yet, part of those folks that were in the crowd would have eaten the manna that he gave them to their fill. 
So we have to ask ourselves, in the midst of God working within our lives, in the midst of God's blessing in our lives, do you murmur or do you praise? Because if we think about it, guilty as charged, there are times where we should be praising and lifting up and exalting, but instead we murmur and focus on the thing that we don't quite get or the thing that isn't exactly the way we want it. And Jesus plan out says to them, do not murmur among yourselves. That's his version of knock it off. Then we get to verse 44, and he gives them the truth. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So they're murmuring, they're upset, despite the miracle that's taken place, despite everything that they've seen. And then in that, he just reminds them, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He gives them the nugget of truth, the first part of salvation. God draws you in. God draws you in to come. Now, this is not an irresistible grace where we then just do nothing. I just, I'm forced into this. No, he draws us in. We learn, we receive, we believe, and from free will of heart, we surrender. And we say, Jesus, I need you. English churchman and theologian Henry Alford has a quote on this that I like. That this drawing is not irresistible grace is confessed even by Augustine himself, the great upholder of the doctrines of grace. If a man is drawn, says an objector, he comes against his will. We answer, if he comes unwillingly, he does not believe. If he does not believe, he does not come. For we do not run to Christ on our feet, but by faith. Not with the movement of the body, but with the free will of the heart. Think not that thou art drawn against thy will, the mind can be drawn by love. So we think about that. It's the free will of the heart. And in that moment, what a truth he's giving to these leaders. God can draw. But what's ticking in here? Pride, doubt, unbelief, anger, frustration. And in that, they're not able to come. And then you can read that and say, well, wait, how do I know if I'm drawn? I want to know. I want to know that I'm drawn. How do I know that I know that I know that I'm drawn? Do you know that you're a sinner? Yes, I know I'm a sinner. Okay. And you know that you need a savior. Yes. Is Jesus your savior? Yes, I believe that. I've read that. You're drawn. There we go. That's what he does. And then we wonder then, okay, well, if he draws, then are some just set that they're, they're never going to be drawn? There's never that chance? Second Peter 3.9, men who went to the Deep South Men's Conference should have this completely etched in your heart. You have it memorized and you remember all the teachings on it. Saw Nate smile, that means he did. Good. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. God wants all to come to repentance. He will draw. He will do the work. The word will go forth. But there's a choice that has to be made. There's a surrender that has to be made. So when we see that, when we think about the drawing in, guess what, saints? Let that be a little boost for your evangelism. Share. He's going to do the drawing. Share the word. Put it before people. 
And in that also, let that shift your prayer for salvation more. And as you pray for salvation for that person who hasn't given their life to Christ yet, pray for surrender. Pray for their hearts. Pray for their hearts that they would come to say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, be my Savior. How is one drawn? Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard me and learned from the Father comes to me. He quotes Isaiah 54, 13 there. Now, as we know in verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So he's teaching in the synagogue at this point. He's had opportunity to do that. It, Sabbath could be, this could be a part of the text where they are. The scripture is going forth. We're taught through the word of God. We hear, we learn, we come. We hear the word of God. We learn who Jesus is. We believe in who he is and we come. Am I depraved? Yes. Do I need Jesus as my savior? Yes. And that's how it goes. So amidst these religious, he's putting truly, if we see this, no limits on who can be saved. Because if we think about what religion does, and if we think about all the rules that they're seeking to have everybody follow, which is why they resist Jesus so much, he's making it quite simple. There's a mystery to salvation, and there's also a beautiful simplicity. And right after pointing all of that out, he then reminds them of the intimacy that only he has with God the Father. Verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. If we think of John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So he gives the full picture. This is how salvation works. This is how this goes. And guess what? None of you have seen the Father. I have seen the Father because he is God. He is pre-existent. He is God veiled in flesh. And right after that, he goes on to remind them. Most assuredly, I say to you. And those are those words that when we see that, this is where Jesus is saying, hey, listen up. This is important. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me. There's the anchor. There's the point. Believe in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. There's that phrase again. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. No amount of bread, he reminds them, that they ate could fulfill what I'm talking about fulfilling. This is not physical hunger. This is your spiritual need. This is a spiritual hunger that only Jesus can fulfill. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it And not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So, verse 47, we see believe in him, the result, everlasting life. Why everlasting life? Verse 48, he is the bread of life. 
they're limited on how they think about death at this point. There's two deaths if we think about this. There's the death, the physical death that we have in the world. And there's the spiritual death to God. When we're spiritually dead, there's no consciousness, there's no awareness of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. I will dwell within you. You will then have eternal life. This isn't a moment of cannibalism. It's a spiritual truth. This is, again, to remind you the first of the seven I am statements. And each of these I am statements that Jesus gives, he lays it out. And then you've got to dig in deeper. Then you've got to go deeper to see. Because he's saying here, I shall give my flesh. If we think about our study of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. John 10, 11, we'll get there eventually. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. It's about his life being given. But again, it's a physical limitation. Think about Nicodemus. He was limited in that moment. Born again? How is that supposed to work? How do I go back inside that? that, What are you talking about? Think of the Samaritan woman. Living water. What? Bread of life. What? We have to dig deeper. And on that, we have to ask ourselves a question as you dig deeper. Do you place any limits on God by your intellect? Because we can do that so often. Do you dig deeper than man's surface and theology. Not knocking those things, but do you dig deeper? And how do you respond to God's things that are beyond the human brain? Rapture. That's beyond the human brain, if we think about that. And we see in the Old Testament we're caught up. Okay, so we know that this is going to happen, but that's beyond that. With UFOs now, they probably have a good cop-out. The UFOs took them. The rapture wasn't real. But the reality, brothers and sisters, how do you reconcile those things? Do you place an intellectual limit on the Holy Spirit, on God? We have to be mindful of this. Verse 52. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? So in this moment now, there's more bickering. So they're over. They've, they first tried that bit where you're just a dude. What are you talking about? Now he's talking about giving his flesh to eat. What is he talking about? And remember, these leaders, they'd know the Levitical laws, cannibalism, those things. That's no dice, no go. So they'd look at it from the law perspective, and then they'd look at it from the, what is wrong with this dude? And then look at all these people that are following him. And God reveals wonder through Christ in this moment. Because he just keeps moving forward with the truth. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Something to notice in this passage, our Savior is faithful in trying to get the message across. 
Because if you notice, he's saying the same thing. He's just saying it a little differently. And then he's like, let me remind you again. The manna with Moses, there was no dice there. They, they died. I have eternal life. He wants. He is long-suffering. That's that verse that we looked at in 2 Peter. Coming to life as he's trying to lay out this explanation that they would believe. And he says to them again, most assuredly, unless there's a condition here. He will draw. But unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you partake, receive, you have no life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up at the last day. He gives the eternal security. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Reiterates the point. Then he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The intimate unity that one can have with Jesus. And in the context is powerful because the last intimate relationship that was spoken about was God the Father and God the Son. And now he's saying, whoever does this abides in me and I in them. The depth of intimacy that we get to have with our King. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread of life which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live again. He shares the fruit of salvation and reminds what will happen. Eternal life. Now in that, I have to have a little word with anybody who's visiting who may be Catholic or any former Catholics or any religions that try to then say, because we'll take this portion of scripture and apply it to communion. Many will do and will say, okay, this means you have to have communion. If you don't have communion, you're not saved. And when you have communion, we're doing a little magic act here, and it's actually his real flesh and blood that you're consuming in this moment. Believe it or not. How? It just happens. It's his real flesh and blood. Now, on the idea that we need to partake in communion for salvation, Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, today you need to have communion and then I will dunk you, and then you will be with me in paradise. These are things we beautifully do in remembrance. Communion is something we do in remembrance. That's not where we're going with what we're looking at. Let's think about some imagery here. If we think about the bread, because this is what Jesus is putting in this metaphor, right? If we think about the bread, the bread came mysteriously in the wilderness. Jesus is birthed. Mysteriously, this virgin, the Holy Spirit impregnating her and this Messiah coming through this line. If we think about the bread, it's small. Our Savior's humility. Our Savior coming, humbling himself as a bondservant. If we think about the picture of the bread, we see round and that roundness reminds us of eternity of the eternal life given from the bread. When one eats physical bread, you do so to fill your belly. 
to fill inside. When one eats of Jesus, remembering, believing, receiving, you're filling the inner man, your soul. And it's surrendered to him, and it's his. Barclay, a British theologian, writes, he is saying, you must stop thinking of me as a subject for theological debate. You must take me into you, and you must come into me, and then you will have real life. Do you make Jesus debate or relationship? Because far too often we get lost in a world where we make it about all these rules or things, and we forget relationship. Hold on to that relationship with him. To eat of Jesus is to receive Christ in the inner being. It's to be consumed by Christ. It's to be satiated by him. If we think of the verses that even reference communion, it always refers to body. It doesn't talk about the flesh because when we think about the bread of life here, his flesh, broken, his blood shed that we can have salvation, eternal life, be raised the last day. Jesus in this is pointing to the substitutionary death of Christ that will come. If we think of John chapter 10, verse 11, we saw, I am the good sheep, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep. Verse 15 As the Father knows me, even so, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus gives his life for the sheep, for his people. Then if we turn to chapter 11, verse 50. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He dies for his sheep. He dies for the nation. He dies for all that would come to believe. In that, he dies for those that he would call friend. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. That intimacy with our Savior. And when we think about that, and when we think of feasting on him, partaking on him, and not partaking of the world, partaking of the truths we know about our King, Jesus Messiah, We should read Galatians 2.20 with a stronger conviction. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We get the gift. And in that gift, we live by faith because it's personal. It's a personal relationship with Jesus, Messiah. And that personal relationship doesn't have boundaries where it's an elite Christian club. I'm in the club and you're not. No, all could be in the club. They need the word presented to them that they may come to believe. 1 John 2. 
My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. For the whole world. This text that we look at today, brothers and sisters, we see our Savior saying, there's a way for eternal life. Feast on me. Partake, receive, but they're taking him literally. When we take it just literally, guess what? The mind places then limits and the spiritual truth is missed. Eternal life, receive, partake. For you, are you literal and intellectual about Jesus? Or do you embrace his mystery, his sovereignty? Eat, drink, it's to receive Jesus. If I put a bunch of pictures up from Instagram, because people love taking pictures of food, if I put a bunch of pictures of bread and just said, hey, we're going to eat this bread, look at all these pictures, would you be filled? No. If I take you to Gugelhopf, which is a great little bakery, and I bring you over there and I say, smell the bread, don't take any bites, just smell it. Isn't it yummy? Yeah, I can't taste it. To actually have the bread consume you, you've got to ingest it. Thinking about ourselves with Jesus, when we look at the scripture, remember the heart of your salvation when you partook of Jesus and said, I surrender. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. And we can remember that, but then as we go on, we start to stifle the inner man. We stifle, we quench the Holy Spirit because we add on all of these different things and we oftentimes make our relationship with Jesus look like our own set of religious rules and our checkbox that makes us feel like we're getting it right. We're not feasting and partaking and eating and drinking because we're too busy doing, making, rather than being still. And washed by him. Charge for this week. One. Prayerfully ponder. God veiled in the flesh. Laying flesh. Laying his life down. Blood shed for you. All sin on him. Past, present, future. Return to the heart of your salvation. Return to the heart of your salvation. And awe. And be still there. And I really, really encourage you. Take that time. Set aside time to go before the Lord and really remember the moment you surrendered all to Jesus. Go back to that point. And when you've done it, do it again. Do it again. And stay in that place of awe. Think of when you first come to know, it's just like, whoo, I just want more. And then that fire fades. Let's keep that fire lit. Two, is your inner man being fed? And what's your inner man being fed with? Word, spirit, way. Get in the Bible. Make prayer a priority. Make church and fellowship with the believers a priority. Make communion with the Holy Spirit, intimacy with the Holy Spirit a priority. And check for yourself. Is it about systems or his sovereignty? Is it about rules or the relationship with him? 
Is it about temporal or eternal? Is it about intellect or the intercessor? Is it about you or is it about him? And the third one, who in your life needs his flesh and blood? Who in your life needs his flesh and blood? I keep saying it like a broken record. We've got to share. We've got to put the word of God before people. We've got to put our Savior, who he is. Let me tell you about my Jesus, like that song says. We've got to do that. We've got to be evangelizing. We've got to be sharing. And in that, I'm talking about the flesh and blood. Tell about the work of the cross. His body was laid down for you. Hands pierced for you. That you can be free. That you can be made new. And then partake with them in who he is. Salvation. Sanctification. And running the race with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God. We thank you so much, Lord, for the work of the cross, Lord God. Thank you, Father God, that you sent your son to take our place for what we deserved, that he took it, Lord, that we can be new in you, Heavenly Father. Lord God, I pray that anybody who doesn't know you here today, Lord, may come to that place themselves where they realize they're consuming everything to seek fulfillment. If there's only one that gives true fulfillment, true peace that surpasses understanding, Jesus, that they would come to that place of surrender, that they would give their life to you. And Lord, for us who know you, who love you, who worship you, Heavenly Father, bring us back to that heart of salvation where you drew us in and we surrendered. We gave our will up we gave our hearts to you, knowing who you are, the one true holy God, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. And Lord, that as we would ponder that, we would just seek to know you even more and deeper and closer. Lord, give us a deeper hunger for your word. Give us a deeper hunger to commune with you in prayer, to worship you, Lord to exalt you, to sing out to you, Lord, to pray for people, to pray with one another, Lord, that we would partake in you alone and nothing of this world. Lord, bless this precious church and these people. Have your way in their lives, please. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. Have a beautiful afternoon.